The opinions and views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and not necessarily those of Midwest Family Springfield, its management, or its advertisers. This is the Noblest Motive. Deontay, I'd love to get a little bit of background on you. Why, sir, you went into education? I think from an early age, I always wanted to be a teacher, probably like since first grade. No, um content area really interests me and so I think high school I worked for I describe it as like a special education park district or a park district like organization for students and adults with disabilities but then my brother and I have a twin we both were in special ed for early childhood and then he was placed back into special education services um, from fifth grade on. And some of his experiences, particularly in high school, drew me to special education. And as such, I did my bachelor's at University of Wisconsin Whitewater um, in a special education program, did all the things for my licensure, and then applied to grad school, admitted in the doctoral program, and here we are. What about your brother's time inspired this? I mean, I think my brother Tony faced a lot of backlash and faced a lot of negative experiences, particularly in high school. I can recall an instance where he was hacky sacking before school started in the school cafeteria where everyone, you know, was kind of to sit and stay until the school day started. The deans came down to the cafeteria to get their morning coffee and asked him why was he hacky sacking and told him to stop. My brother, of course, didn't find an issue with hacky sacking um, in that space in particular. And so, you know, an argument ensued. And then ultimately he was brought down to the dean's office. I had followed and I just saw my brother presented like something that was afforded in his IEP or individualized education program known as a BIP card. And basically he could present this to school staff. And that would then afford him five minutes to plug his headphones in, listen to music, and de-escalate a bit before anyone was to engage with him. Uh, Dean directly ignored that card, and then Tony did like a a slight gesture where he tapped one knuckle on the side of the wall, and they ended up calling the cops, and he was suspended for three days. And so I think that's just one instance, but my brother faced a lot of um, wrongful experiences um, within special education and just the school system in general. And so fighting for students who look like us, especially students in my brother's circumstances, um, really is what brought me to education. Well, you said something that Deontay stuck out to me. You said since first grade you wanted to get into education. Mm -hmm. So how does a brain even think about wanting to do that in first grade? I mean, where were your thoughts? I think um, maybe. I don't know. I think initially it was very much a situation where I wanted to be like a teacher, um, but I always had really positive teachers in elementary school, and I thought it was a great uh, job to have. But then in middle school, I really had like a really pivotal moment in my scoring where just I had a really good set of supportive teachers that, you know, I really became comfortable in my own skin and in my own identities with their help. And after that point in middle school, specifically sixth grade, I was like, yeah, I definitely want to be a teacher. I don't know what it's going to be. I'm kind of good at math, but so it definitely was started maybe a little, a little superficial or like, yeah, I, well, yeah, like a cool uh, uh, thing, yeah. but it definitely evolved. We find so often across just life in general, right? That love often does begin in a superficial sense. We see something and we say, oh, that looks cool or that looks beautiful. 
And then after we get past that initial stroke, you find the value within the value. So you are primarily in 100% in um, special education. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm in the educational leadership policy analysis space. I exclusively think about special education, both practices and policy. So with that said, what, Deontay, what is your analysis of our current circumstance, our current situation in terms of our present policy and what innovations must occur? I think with special education in mind, yeah. special education is all around servicing difference based on disability and disability labels. You know, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and as such, that job is hard. I mean, the role of teachers and all teachers, regardless of whether you're special ed, general education, as well as elective teachers, it's a difficult task. I think particularly with special education, the demographic of students that we serve within that field, it presents a lot of challenges and it presents a lot of need for innovation in terms of how to teach. You can't default based on your own experiences in a classroom and doing direct instruction where a teacher lectures the whole time, students sit in their desk silently and raise their hands for participation. You have to think and adapt and modify the ways to instruct students based on their needs and their difficulties. I think it's a tough task. I think special ed has a lot of promise and the idea behind it is good and it was ha- it has good intentions. But I do think the basis of it, especially thinking about disability and difference and placing that difference within the individual rather than thinking about how an environment responds to a person, I think that is also a challenge that special educators as well as People who think about special ed have to battle against because that idea is very problematic. And it goes beyond just special ed, but people have pathologized difference as a problem and as a status of discrimination or segregation on that same basis. And so special ed is no different. It has a different thing it focuses on, which is different, specifically disability. But... It follows a similar thought process in terms of thinking about difference, especially when we think about race, gender identity, sexual orientation, and so on, and the backlashes or challenges people have to face with those identity markers Mm -hmm. um, because of how we situate difference. So with that being said, Deontay, in your professional opinion, do you see the backlash that's occurring across the United States in different states, such as Florida, with transgender and sexual identity and gender identity, as well as places like Tennessee? Do you see these threats that different communities are coming under right now? Do you see special education and the differently abled as being in the scope, so to speak, as well? I think that, broadly speaking, maybe not. But I think it's also, if we apply different identities, such as race and gender, within a special education education context, I do think that there could be backlashes. But I think, you know, IDEA, I think there's a lot of safeguards and provisions in place to um, protect those identified as being in need of special education services. And so maybe the backlash um, will be less severe as it is outside of that realm. Right. However, who's to say? I don't know. I think we'll, we'll see, but I don't foresee like the same um, attacks and or backlash um, happening within special education. But I do think 
cause, at least with what's going on outside of this context, related to gender, related to like the ban on CRT and book right. bans across the country, I do think that will pose challenges to special ed, especially when thinking about innovation. That's really interesting stuff. And if I ask questions that seem, I mean, I'm just trying to kind of put everything together in my head. So when you're talking about policy for special ed and general education, is there any crossover or are they two totally different entities that just don't even communicate with each other? Um, I mean, I think hypothetically they are separate. They are distinct from one another, but they operate on the same basis, which is to educate students. Now, what students are educating, I think, is the difference point, but there is interaction because in special education, there's a principle within the law that talks about least restrictive environment, and what this really means is that you want to place students identified with a disability the least secluded space away from their uh, same age, non-disabled peers, and so ideally, a lot of students, if the needs aren't as significant as others, are placed in a general education setting, and so general education teachers have to collaborate right. with special education teachers right. to think about, you know, educating students with disabilities. But for some who have greater needs, they definitely require a, a more restrictive setting. Do you think uh, a general education teacher could benefit from that kind of training? One thousand percent. I mean, I think that. For the most part, a lot of teacher prep programs do have general educators or content teachers take at least one class in special education. Um, that being said, is that enough? I mean, no. But I do like the, I mean, there's a lot of things general educators could benefit from learning through a special education lens, like thinking about individuals and how to service individuals on the basis of their needs. Yeah. Um, that being said, I mean, I think it's a logistical challenge doing it in a general education space, making sure that every student has something that they're vested in and or interested in and that being integrated into the curriculum. I mean, that's a tall task, right? Yeah. But I do think some of the principles, such as providing students their uh, services or accommodations or modifications based on their need, I think that's most certainly um, something that general educators would benefit from knowing. It's just the service delivery aspect of it would be different. Right. Not to say that it would be so different, but to say that the, these students, like all students would have an individualized education program. I mean, that one, again, like it's a logistical challenge because general educators often teach more students. And so where special educators, I mean, caseloads range in numbers, but ideally there'd be no greater than you know, 16 to 18, and that's still on the high end of the scale. Right. So doing that for a larger number of students, that'd be really hard. That being said, if it's hard, should it not be done? I don't think so. Yeah. Just, I think we'd have to reimagine what that looks like. Right. I mean, it's, as John Maynard Keynes once said, the problem is not in developing new ideas, but escaping the old ones. And we have the ability to innovate, but do we have the ambition to do so. Do we have the organization to do so? Do we have the ambition? As was talked about during previous interviews that I've done today, right? Like we have the money for that which we allocate it for. When we need to spend more money on the military, we have money to do that. When yeah. we need to spend more money on a police force, we have the money to do that. When we need to spend more money on teachers, 
we don't have the money to do that. So, Do you have any comments on that, Deontay? I mean, I think, of course, the educational system would benefit from a reallocation of funds outside of that sphere and to get more funds to do the things we do. I think that, I mean, obviously, teachers aren't seen as professions, uh, uh, professionals in the same way as, like, doctors are. And so I do think if we had a reallocation of funds and more of it pushed to education. I mean, there would be great benefits. Will that solve everything? No. But, I mean, starting at the basis of, like, just being able to pay teachers what they're worth and not subpar salaries, such as, you know, maybe less than 40000 for an initially, like, a first-year teacher, yeah, it would have a great benefit, that- and it would also grow the teacher force too so that's been a definite theme throughout our interviews with teachers and policymakers and education mm-hmm. pay for sure i have a, a crazy question not a left turn necessarily but um coming out of complete and utter curiosity do you think a student with special needs or a student of color has more of a challenge currently um in both cases there's definitely some challenges and i think really a more not a more interesting question but what if we applied both so students of color with a disability right i think depending on the identity and that's really my area of focus i think about intersectionality between race and disability and my studies focus on students of color within special ed so i think that their challenges are unique but that's not to say that um, students of color and then separate students with disabilities uh, or with disabilities have more challenges. I think the challenges are different, and I think there's a variety of reasons and factors that go into those challenges. Gotcha. Well, how long did it take for that to be your your primary focus? Because I know it started kind of with education, then special education. Is what you're doing, studying and, and practicing, is that considered niche in education or really specific? I think it's emerging. I think that the groundwork to study um, students with disabilities, particularly students of color with disabilities, has the foundation of that has been laid down. But those who take up that work, it's definitely a smaller set of researchers, yeah. educators, policy thinkers um, than, you know, those who just think about education in general. So it is niche in a way. And I think there's also just a lot of uh, resistance maybe to do it because it's so complicated. And how do you capture the complexity without oversimplifying the circumstance? I think that's a challenge that all of us who think about intersections of race and disability within the specialized context have to try and contemplate. Um, but I think I've been interested since Tony, like my brother and I, yeah, uh, were in special ed, but more so once we were in high school, because here's the student who, yes, he has a disability label, which was a learning disability, but a lot of his behaviors, I think the teachers related it to an emotional behavioral disability, which right. we know. Um, research has shown that there's overrepresentation of students of color with those particular labels because and they would be called like high incidence disability categories. There's a lot of reasons for um, students of color being placed with those labels more so than others, specifically evaluation criteria being biased and supposedly they're race neutral, but they're really a creating pathways to have a large number of black and brown students identified with these labels. That sounds like one of the unique challenges you were talking about, you know, in terms of 
what specifically these kinds of students deal with. Is there anything else you can expound on that in terms of unique challenges? I mean, I think thinking about how do we allow students to be their authentic selves within their cultural identity in a space that has been designed for white students and mm-hmm. white people. Mm-hmm. Yes, we may like want them to feel con- like stu- different students to feel comfortable in our space. And we like a lot of teachers focus on inclusive settings, but yeah. are we really thinking about appropriate and inappropriate behaviors through cult- different cultural lenses? Yes. And I would argue that a lot of that isn't being done. We're, you know, thinking about appropriate versus inappropriate behaviors, student discipline on a basis of what has been done for, you know, decades. And as such, that means you have to sit down be quiet, raise your hand, don't wander the hallways, this, that, and the third. Right. And I think, yes, there's has to be some sort of order in education. Like there has to be some way to get material out there. But are people being like, even just a classic example of like people being noisy in a space, is that really problematic? Or like, for example, a lot of black women some would characterize as being louder in the way they communicate. Now, is a black girl being loud a problem? And whose problem is it? Right. Is it their problem or is it adults' problems? And so I think that really the circum- like the, the place we're in right now is a lot of adult problems are fueling how we approach discipline, how we approach behavior management, and I don't think that should be the case. That being said, putting your dispositions aside and your biases aside that's a hard thing to do. That being said, it should be done to then allow for people to truly be themselves in an authentic way rather than forcing them to be a certain type of student just so they can receive their education. Wow. That that was absolutely remarkably said. And I, I appreciate you saying it so that the world can hear it because these are the types of important things that we're trying to coax out of out of knowledgeable intellectuals such as yourself. You know what? It's funny. You've said in a, in like three different ways right now through this interview, just because it's hard doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. And you definitely seem like is a core value of how you operate. And correct me if I'm wrong, because you are tackling the hard issues. And just in the way that you've discussed with us so openly and transparently that says something too i mean it's it's a really touchy topic but you have to talk about it and how you talk about it is is really important for a second let's take out the stereotypical construct of dirty and let's just go to the garden right and you go to the garden and you get dirty and what happens after you get dirty you got flowers Right. And that's what we need to do. We need to get dirty so that we can grow something beautiful. Yeah. That's more poetic than what I was going to say, because what I was going to akin it to is therapy, because nobody wants to go to therapy. I'm a poet, so that's that's what I have to do. I'm sorry for that. Yeah, but it's it's hard work and it's, it's work that's going to completely shock the system and turn everything upside down. And that's scary for people. It's like substance abuse. Uh, uh, nobody wants to go to rehab, but if you're going to go to rehab, then that's going to shake everything up. It's the same thing, I guess, across the board. But yes, what does Deontay see as the the space of of education for? 
disabled, differently abled um, black Americans in, in our education system in five years? In five years? In five uh, years. You could do 10 years, whichever seems more comfortable for you. I was going to say 10. Let's do 10. I like 10. <laughs> I think with the work I think about and hopefully work that is to be taken on board is being done right now. I think that ideally within a special ed context, there'd be less disproportionality within high incidence disability categories. And that means we have to restructure evaluation criteria, but also think about dispositions of teachers and how they're viewing students. And if that's then leading to a referral to be evaluated in the first place, and I'm, I'm disrupting that. Um, so I think in 10 years, I hopefully we could get there. But that being said, I think we've been trying to get there for a long time. I think the field of special ed is resistance to change because I'm not sure. I haven't been able to like diagnose why this resistance is a thing. But I think even getting the field to shy away from a medical model of disability towards disability as a social construct. I mean, yes, people welcome that intellectual labor through an article, but is that being taken up in special education practices and or policy and legislation? No. So it's like, I hope we lay the foundation within the next 10 years to get to that point with also recognizing, like, for example, in the state of Wisconsin, there, the Department of Public Instruction recently in 2021 redefined their evaluation approach and guide to identifying a student with an emotional or behavioral disability. And I think it was done to reduce the disproportionate known number of black and brown students within that disability category in the state. But one thing that I think hasn't been reconciled yet is that, yes, we may make this disability label more equitable in terms of how we evaluate, but let's also recognize the burden it's going to place other disability categories with that new change. And so what I suspect is that students are then, um, when they're up for reevaluation, which happens every three years, um, students with EBD might get a new label and that then might further disproportionality in another disability category. And so I think that evaluation across categories needs to happen, but I also think that teachers need to think about how they're viewing the student and their biases and dispositions that are fueling their opinions and disrupting that a bit. So I hope in the next 10 years we can, we can start doing that. But that being said, I definitely think it's going to take a little bit longer to fundamentally shift the field. Yeah, that's the second theme that I've heard across is uh, evaluation. We heard tracks from Christopher, tracks. and now we have, you know, a, a viewpoint, right? It, it is, to your point, Rocky, it yeah. is, these are two threads that we've heard through all of our discussions. This is a personal question that I often wrestle with, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts concerning it. Do you think that we have taken time to try to consider how to manage and develop the lives of differently abled individuals in positive, in reasonable, and in short-term ways. Have we neglected to consider the different types of unbelievable um, things that individuals with different abilities actually can do? Since we're so hyper-focused on the things that they struggle with, have we taken enough time to consider, well, okay, somebody who knows all the Roman numerals by the time they're seven they might need to be fast-tracked into some type of area in which that type of brain functionality can serve a real intrinsic purpose. I think that, I mean, I think there's been moments even when, you know, the law wasn't laid down and 
current reauthorizations and so forth, but back when, you know, 97 or um, years prior, I think that there has always been pockets where we focus on strengths of students with different abilities versus the negatives. But I think that overall, uh, there's definitely been more of a hyper-focus on, on deficit and deficit as a problem to fix rather than difference just being allowed to be as it is. Because I think difference isn't inherently negative, but I think the ways in which we've taken it up to make it negative when it doesn't have to be. So there's been pockets of it. I think it's coming more and more often, but how do you do that within a system that is oriented around viewing difference as a negative thing? You know, we're talking about transgender, the fact that it's being fought against so hard because we're talking about it more, which is a good thing, and it's part of the process, I think. Do you think we're close in this age of technology, and um, do you think we're close to a teetering point on being able to make these big changes? Um, As to how we see and perceive constructs such as gender identity and education and as you mentioned differences yeah i think it's possible i don't i don't see why not i think that it of course is going to be an uphill battle as it has already been um especially with you know censorship tends at keeping this difference as a as an inferior thing compared to how it, you know, may occur in nature. But I do think with more conversations, more work being done on differences in gender and sexual orientation, I think we are close to a teetering point. I'd be interested to see what the teetering point results in, because I think, especially with transgender in mind, it's definitely situated. I think that it's always going to be a battle, no matter how much we talk about it. That being said, I do think um, in the current times we may be close to a teetering point, and I do hope so. Deontay, you're, you're fantastic, and I look forward to, to getting your expression and your understanding and perception of the world out there. Thank you so much, and we will definitely be in touch. Yes. Thank you so much for the opportunity and the, the very productive dialogue. I appreciate it. This is The Noblest Motive. Find The Noblest Motive on your favorite podcasting platforms. For topic ideas and questions, email podcast at WMAY.com. The Noblest Motive is a production of Midwest Family Springfield.